Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome sports fans. My name is Jake Azuski. You can call me Jake Iggy or Iggy for short. And this is Iggy Sports Talk. Hopefully, I am really praying to God that sports will come on the TV sooner or later and we won't have to keep on waiting till 4 a.m. to 5 a.m. to watch the Korean Baseball League. And hopefully there will be some sort of, you know, rollouts where baseball will start, football, or I'm sorry, M- NBA might start, you know, hockey might start. But I want to have a special guest on today named Chris Cotillo to talk a little bit about not only what he has been doing on Twitter to be able to help raise money for the coronavirus, but also what he has been able to do during this pandemic to really grow his Red Sox news presence. So Chris is a mass live Red Sox beat writer. He also started a podcast called Fenway Rundown, and he is also a newly very successful Twitter auctioneer. So how's it going, Chris? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. So I was just curious, first of all, how has the coronavirus sort of affected your job at Mass Live and reporting on the Red Sox? Yeah, it's obviously changed. You know, I would normally, I think right now, I think today was an off day, but I was going to be traveling from North Carolina where I went to school, uh, where I had some friends graduating yesterday that didn't happen, to uh, Atlanta where the Red Sox were supposed to be playing the Braves in a two-game series starting tomorrow. So I had my whole Southeast trip scheduled and it's really disappointing every time i get the flight notifications even though those have been canceled for three months but um yeah i'm living with my parents uh now i have an apartment in boston but i don't uh, i haven't been there since uh, february because i came straight home from spring training and ended up uh coming home uh, to central mass so it's uh it's been crazy um the whole family's kind of together there's no games going on so I look at the calendar and say, oh, where was I supposed to be today? And it's disappointing every time, but I'm doing our best to get through it and uh, been staying busy, as I'm sure a lot of people have, in a much different way than I would have expected. It's great to hear that you, you've at least been staying safe and, and that you're in a safe environment at your parents' house. And it must have been nice, obviously, to be there to be able to celebrate Mother's Day with your mom. Yeah, it was. It was good. We um, And I know we're about to talk about the auction, so... She's been a huge help with that. She was a huge help in getting all the autographs uh, back when we got them and has been doing the a, a lot of the mailing and helping me with that. So it's been cool to be, you know, bonding with the family. And my sister's a freshman in um, college, and she's bummed out, obviously, that she lost her freshman spring. But the four of us are, are uh, back in here like the old days. So um, it's it's been definitely uh, a little bit different, but it's been fun. Yeah, I mean, it's awesome to hear that you at least had a little bit of help with doing all these different sort of auctions on Twitter because, I mean, you you posted on Twitter today that you sold more than 350 auction items and you started on April 12th and you raised more than $57,000 for 37 plus charities. So I was just curious, what was really your main goal in, in starting this whole auction? Yeah, there wasn't. There was never really a main goal. You know, it was never... Um something that I set out to do from the beginning. Uh, it really was more of just a one night, I believe it was Easter Sunday. So about four weeks ago, I'm just um, was thinking of ways I could possibly give back and help out. And uh, just from there, um, just remembered that I had an autograph collection in the closet. So I put a few things up. I think we got 500 and something dollars that first night. And from there, people started donating from their own collections and teams and players and Alex Cora and other people started donating. So from there, it blew up. And uh, it, it kind of went 
farther than any of my wildest dreams. And uh, at this point, you know, I'm seeing that, you know, there's for a lot of reasons, it's, it's run its course. It's been an incredibly rewarding month. Like you said, 57,000, um, you know, give or take. So it's been great. I think there's a lot of people in need. I'm sure that they, um, you know, people have been helped by what we've done. Uh, I just happen to be the middleman in it. Like I said, my parents helped me out, but all the great people on Twitter, all the people who bid, who donated items, who retweeted it, all that kind of stuff there. It was, uh, it was an army that came together to get this done. So, um, I'm appreciative toward a lot of people. Yeah, because you were able to auction off a lot of incredible items, like a, a, a day spending with Section 10, and, and then also what you brought up. With, but there are some cool other cool ones. Right, yeah. And, and I'm curious, just in your collection, what, what was like the hardest card to let go? Uh, Mike Trout. You know, that was the one that he's the uh, best player in baseball and one of the best players ever. So, you know, that was um, – that was tough to see go, obviously. Um, but I knew that people were going to be bidding and they got into a crazy bidding war. They got kind of controversial at the end, but we ended up, uh, that car went for $1,310 to the, for the Orange County Food Bank. There's a guy in California who I mailed to and he received it already. If that got lost in the mail, I don't know what I'd possibly do, but it didn't. So, um, <laughs> look, if, if, uh, if a piece of cardboard in my uh, room in my office here it can turn into $1,300 for a food bank during a pandemic. I think it would be, it would be malpractice to not put that up. So um, it was tough putting it in the envelope and seeing it off to the uh, post office. But like I said, 1300 bucks, well worth it. And um, I, I, I hope uh, Bill in California who got it is enjoying it. Yeah, absolutely. And I was just curious, when did you start, like collecting baseball cards and autographs and i was just curious if you got some of these while you were working for mass live or when you were reporting for the if i did that i would not have my job so that would be that would be a a big red flag now that was my huge concern when i started this um you know i I think that was my my main thing i i had one question from my boss um when i had this idea and it was you know do you think people are gonna think it's weird that i have this autograph collection when it's, you know, it's really, really, really against the rules of doing it with a credential. And they said, well, you just got to be clear when you got them. And I think it's clear based on, you know, people kept asking me, do you have Jackie Bradley autographs or do you have Bogarts? And no, I don't. You know, I, I, I Bogarts ended up, we had some people donate some stuff and um, Sale and Devers and some of those guys. But no, I've never gotten their autographs in person because that would be extremely illegal under the rules of, you know, covering baseball. But these were all. You know, almost every card in my binder was from 2010 or 2009 through 2011, maybe early part of 2012. So uh, that puts me in uh, middle school and high school. So I think eighth grade summer was my big one. Maybe freshman year of high school was huge. I mean, I was not even really considering this as a career path then, but loved being around Fenway. Figured I wouldn't be able to do it once I got into the real world, which turned out, you know, I'm lucky enough that I get to do that now uh, during the summer when there's not you know, the a virus going around. So, um, but it was a lot of trips. I live uh, out near Worcester and, you know, my mom and a couple of friends and I would go in and go to a game, get the cheapest tickets on StubHub or whatever, and go in before and get a bunch of autographs or we'd go to some shows. And um, so we have a lot of good memories and uh, it's been cool to kind of um, relive those as we look at the different autographs in the collection, guys that I even forgot that I got, you know, guys who were prospects back then or, you know, I like the one mm-hmm. example of a guy who's on the Red Sox that everybody knows was I, I got Mitch Moreland uh, when he was a rookie with the Rangers back in 2010 or 2011. Um, 
And, you know, I didn't even really know who he was then. I opened the binder and, oh, there's Mitch Moreland, who I've now covered and know. And uh, <laughs> those obviously went for pretty good prices because he's a fan favorite in Boston now. So, um, yeah, it was uh, cool to open those up. I had not opened that binder in probably six, seven years at least because I haven't lived fully at home. Um, obviously, with, with college for four years and then living in Boston for the last two, I didn't bring any of that stuff with me, which kind of would have been weird if I did. So um, I'm glad that it's in, uh, I guess, over probably 200 different homes across America and Canada and Mexico, Australia and the UK, which is not cheap to ship to. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible all the people that you were able to reach with it, with this auction. And I, I, I mean, I, I've when I was younger, I used to collect a ton of autographs. It was one of the best ways to be able to connect with the players. And especially when you get that autograph and you're able to meet those players face to face, you're like, wow, you know, th- this this makes me closer to the game. And so you talked about sort of what the reaction of your boss was when you first started this. But especially when once you started raising a lot of money, I, I you know, upwards of thirty thousand to forty thousand dollars. I was just curious the reaction of people around Mass Live and some people that you work with. Yeah, on that what was you were doing. that was really cool because um, you know I, I started on a Sunday night that first week. You know, obviously there's no games going on. There's not much to write about, and we have two guys on the beat, so it's not like we're we're super. Uh, spread out with having to do a lot of stuff anyway about the Red Sox. But as it kind of blew up and it became a full-time job around the clock, my boss and my, my partner at Mass Live, Chris Smith, and my boss, Jim Pignatello, and some of the other people there, we kind of I talked to them. I said, I feel bad that I'm not really doing work or doing what I'm supposed to be doing. They said, you know what? Do that. Take care of it. Um, it's great for for everybody that is, is what's going on. And obviously, you're representing us while you do it. So um, they were extremely supportive, which was awesome. Um and uh even you know chris chris and another one of my colleague uh colleague meredith perry donated some big items so uh it just continued to spread and spread and spread so really thankful for uh all the people who had had a hand in it that's really cool and and then yeah also during this pandemic you were able to start a podcast called fenway rundown and for all the listeners listening go over and check that out it's on apple podcasts and spotify but I was just curious. So what was the main motivation for you to start a Red Sox? Podcast? It was uh, something that I did last year with CLNS. I was the host of the Red Sox beat podcast there. Um, and that was separate of mass live. And, you know, it kind of did my own thing with it once a week and had a lot of people from the beat and a lot of people from, you know, around baseball that recorded that. And that was a cool experience because I'd never hosted anything like that before. Obviously appeared on a lot like this one and done some radio, but um, never hosted one. Um, and then, you know, after doing that for a year, we, we talked at Mass Live. Is this something that we would want to bring in house and do it and create our own show? Um, and the answer was yes. So I left CLNS and that, that's now hosted by Josh Lewin, who is a billion times more qualified to do it than I am after being a play by play guy on the radio for 20, 30 years, whatever. But um, so it was CLNS won by losing me and going to him. But uh, we decided to start this then. It started, our first episode was right in the middle of that first week I was doing the auction. We kind of rushed to get the first episode up. The second episode was a week later. Um, some technical difficulties on that, but I had Matt Votor and Chris Smith from Mass Live on with me. And then last week was kind of what I think was, you know, the one people who listened to of the three episodes so far. We had Colin McHugh on, and he was awesome. Um, you know, I don't have a relationship with Colin uh, because he is the newest Red Sox and that he came to spring training a week before it was shut down. I had already left Fort Myers at that point, so I'd never met him. But I, uh, you know, got his number and and gave him a, shot him a text and said, "Hey, I'm Chris Cotillo. I'm hosting this Red Sox podcast." And 
we'd love to have you on. I know you're a really, really opinionated guy. You host your own podcast. It'd be a great way for you to kind of get introduced to Red Sox Nation. And he said, sure, let's do it. And uh, we recorded and uh, had a lot of people tune into that. So the hope, working on some more players for this week. That's my goal for the day is to lock down who it's going to be from the team. Um, and uh, it's, it's right now is a really good time to get guests because people aren't doing anything else. So um, hopefully continue to grow that. And it's great because um, you get articles out of that too. I wrote, I think, three or four pieces off of what McHugh and I talked about and um, a really good way to fill the void when there's not, you know, automatic news on a daily basis. So um, I'm excited about that project and um, it'll be kind of a weekly thing, no matter if there's a season or not, we'll be uh, recording it and, and getting it out there. Yeah. It must've been really neat, especially to get one of the newest Red Sox players like Colin McHugh on the podcast and especially what you spoke on uh, on the podcast I, I listened to the entire thing and I, I thought it was really interesting sort of his thoughts on on social media and how spoken he is on social media and sort of as being a baseball player especially in Boston the impact of social media so I was just curious on on what your reaction to some of his thoughts on not really caring about what fans think about especially with the reaction of how he plays. I mean, we've seen guys like Carl Crawford, John Lackey, David Price allowed social media and the atmosphere or environment of Boston really be able to affect their play. So yeah, I was just curious he's a guy who's thoughts. clearly leaning into it. You know, he, um, he got, for example, he got some backlash from the uh, comments he made on the podcast about saying that, you know, things would be mandatory um, or that it shouldn't be mandatory for players to play, which is a point I totally agree with. And he got some backlash for that. And uh, people were tagging him in the tweets and he was kind of like, I, he was interacting. His wife was interacting with people and trying to clarify his point. Like that's a great way to do it. Honestly, if I was, you know, actually, uh, you know, if I was in the majors and people were criticizing me or wanted clarity, like so many guys just shut it down. Don't pay attention to the noise. And they don't, um, they kind of, you know, just kind of say, well, they're going to skew my words anyway, whatever happens, happens. And, and, you know, the fans are dumb and the media is skewing what I'm saying. That's, that's the position that a lot of guys take. And um, so it's really refreshing when a guy actually challenges that, you know, I saw something that is, is kind of tangentially related, but Dan Orlovsky, who I think is like the best NFL um, commentator in the business. He's kind of risen up after a horrible playing career. Mm -hmm. He's a, um, now on ESPN and in consideration for the Monday night football booth. And he gave this talk the other day. I saw him in a video on Twitter about, you know, people when they are criticizing people just want to get noticed or they just want people to, to show that uh, or to acknowledge them or whatever. And so his goal is to always respond and be like, Oh, you, you didn't like what I said on TV. Well, here's why I said it. Hopefully we can have an actual good discussion about it. And he's found that that's been really successful and he's connected with a ton of people that way. And people he's very well liked because of it. So, you know, Colin, I think in a different way, because he's an athlete, not a commentator decides that he's going to, you know, try to let his game speak for itself. And what he says in interviews, like the one we did speak for itself, but if it doesn't get across or if he feels like he wants to clarify, he's not going to be afraid to do so. And I wish more guys were like that. He was super candid. He wasn't vanilla at all. He told me how he felt. He wasn't afraid of the repercussions of it. And, it was super appreciated. You know, I think in a lot of time, a lot of times guys are not like that. And uh, he acknowledged that. And with his podcast, the 12 six, he's trying to get guys to open up even more and, and hopefully it uh, starts a little bit of a movement, but I thought his appearance with me at least was like I said, the first time I've ever talked to him. And I thought it was really, really, um, you know, enlightening. 
Yeah, I mean, especially his comments on, on when you asked him about how his wife, when his wife responds to different comments on her, her tweets, he's like, well, she's a big girl. She, she can hold her own. I thought that was pretty funny. But especially his comments on the concerns of starting the MLB season and, and calling the game not essential. Uh, I, I sort of wanted to hear your thoughts on on, on, on what he said and, and sort of if you agree I with that in any way. Uh, it's up to the players if they want to go play. Um you're you're probably going to lose a paycheck, but if he doesn't want to do it, then it's his choice. I was surprised kind of at the backlash it got. Um, you know, these guys are being asked to travel and, you know, be apart from their families and go in and out and back and forth in a way that this is not a job that can be done remotely. Like so many, like even mine, if there's a baseball season can be done remotely. I can sit here and watch the games on TV and ask my stupid questions that the players don't like via Zoom or phone call or whatever instead of doing it at their lockers. So um, his is, he doesn't have that choice. We're not going to be sitting here and playing MLB The Show. I think they tried that, and as Erod showed us, it didn't go too well. So um, I, I think it, it's, it's a good point. It's one that's well taken. Um, it can't be mandatory. They're going to have to sign waivers. And, and there's a war brewing between the Players Association and Major League Baseball in the next few days and weeks about – these proposals and what it means for the players and all that type of stuff. So uh, we'll see exactly how that ends up, but um, he's not the only one that said that Alex Verdugo said kind of similar things to us in a conference call a couple of days before we've seen some other players I think Andrew Miller and Sean Doolittle and some of these other guys have been outspoken and it's been, uh, it's been interesting to see everybody's thoughts. It's not as simple as, Oh, there's a game. We're just going to run over there and play uh, for your entertainment. There's, these are real, real humans and then they have real thoughts and, um, as I've been saying, the, the more we get to hear them, the better off we all are. Absolutely. I mean, especially some of the MLB players that have pre-consisting conditions. And then also something that Jeff Fasson brought up, which I thought was really interesting, is Mike Trout's wife is going to be having a baby in, in August. And would he, you know, risk risk him and, and the health of his family to, to go and play baseball or not? And I, I think it's a really big it's really a big question mark and something that the MLB really needs to sort of answer before they start presenting all these different proposals to, to the players association, because, you know, they just came out with a proposal today talking about that there would be an 82 game regular season and that there'd be an extra postseason round. And, and sort of, I was just curious on how do you think the MLB is going to deal with the sort of war in, in quotations that, that they potentially yeah, could have uh, with the players. Me, association? You know, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a huge question, you know, one that um, is is the question of the next couple of weeks. You know, I think they're they're asking these guys to take pay cuts and potentially play in unsafe situations. That's a huge ask. Um, so the league's going to have to make concessions, or else they're not going to make money. At the end of the day, the league needs the players um, more than the players need the league, and I think we're going to see that in the next few weeks. Yeah, absolutely. And then just lastly, I was just curious on on how you think the players would, would essentially be able to safely social distance because, I mean, they, they obviously talked about players sitting in the stands. They talked about, you know, all these different sort of proposals on how they would be able to do this. But when you really even think about it, if, if a guy's on first base and the first baseman needs to cover him, you know, he's not going to be able to stand six feet away from him. And so it, there's going to be a lot of different question marks on on the tests and everything, but I was just curious on your thoughts on how players yeah, would be able I mean, to that's a million questions. You know, I think they're going to sit apart from each other and sit in the stands maybe instead of the dugouts, but um, you know, we've seen it in Korean baseball. The guys are taking leads. The guys are at first base, you know, guys are turning double plays. They're all touching the same ball. I think they're going to use that as a, um, obviously a, um, a template to see how that's going over there. I've been watching those games because I'm up that time anyway. Um, 
because I'm a maniac, but there's, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of things that are going on over there. You see coaches wearing masks and no fans in the stands. And so that's kind of a guinea pig for the entire world um, on how it's going to be done. And, you know, I think with baseball, it's not a contact sport, so that helps a little bit. Um, but there's going to be, you know, kinks in the hose as they go um, throughout this thing. They're going to have to work work out those issues and adjust on the fly because this is completely unprecedented, unlike anything's ever seen, anything anyone has ever seen before. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then just the last question that I had just re- regarding the Sox. So in terms of, of the whole delay and, you know, Alex Vertugo being able to come back and, you know, this sort of being a bridge year for the Red Sox. I was just curious on if you thought that this delay either helped them be able to compete a little bit better or if this delay has, has really impacted their, their yeah, level of Yeah, it's such an unbelievable crapshoot because um, nobody knows exactly what the rules are going to be, what the rosters are going to be. And I think it helps the Red Sox that they're going to have to, you know, a huge, basically their entire, their whole, well, their entire schedule is going to be against the American League East and the National League East. So you figure... All right, more time to beat up on the Orioles, but that's you know also an advantage that the Rays and the Yankees are going to have, and more games against the Yankees and the Rays, which in my opinion the Red Sox are not as good as those teams, uh, you know, especially if they're not going to be able to play at Fenway, which we don't know how that's going to be. Um, and then there's some good teams on the other side of that. You know, you're going to play the Braves, who are really good, the Nationals, who just won, the Phillies, who are good, the Mets, who are probably going to be bad as they are every year, but people have hope for them. So. Um, it's it's going to be a tough schedule. You don't get to beat up on you know some of those bad teams that you thought you would, like the Tigers and some of those other teams, uh, the Royals. So um, you know the divisions matter are going to matter more than anywhere. But um, it's going to be an interesting way to have a bridge year because if it was going to be a bridge year anyway, you might as well do it in completely ridiculous circumstances where you have you know maybe fifty guys on the roster and um, you know, guys are, are you're working with the opener and all sorts of stuff. And um, it's it's going to look unlike anything we've ever seen before. But, you know, it's it's I think it, it better for the Red Sox that it happened in 2020 than, say, 2018, where they knew they were going to be really, really good. They had the manager in place. They signed J.D. Martinez and they were ready to go. Or last year, even where they just reloaded, blew past the. Uh, competitive balance tax to try to reload and obviously it didn't work out but try to defend that championship in 18 for it to happen now is Mm -hmm. kind of a break if that's possible in these circumstances Um, and uh, I I think it's uh, obviously with an expanded playoff with seven teams in each league that helps any team so um, they could be back in the hunt that way but still you got to think about the obstacles this team's trying to overcome even if there's this crazy schedule and guys aren't fully built up you still only have three starters when things get going. You have, you know, Valdi, Erod, and Martin Perez. Maybe Colin McHugh factors into that mix, or maybe Tanner Houck or some of these other guys. But you still don't have Chris Dale. You still don't have Mookie Betts. You still don't have Alex Cora. So um, no matter what happens, those guys aren't coming back, and um, at least for 2020. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely going to be a fun season. I think it's going to be a high competitive sort of 2020 season. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of stuff to talk about, you know, with, with just Major League and then also with the Red Sox. And so for all the listeners, you can go over to Fenway Rundown and listen to weekly podcast by Chris Cotillo. He's going to be interviewing tons of different Red Sox players and then also talking about things leading up to the 2020 Red Sox season. And then you can also go over and follow him on Twitter at Chris Cotillo, and he posts a ton of different, really up-to-date Red Sox news and then also MLB news to keep all the fans up to date. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I really appreciate you coming on the show today, Chris. 
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.